You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites, and is brought to you by ZeroMo, a non-profit initiative helping transition to battery-powered lawn and gardening equipment and electric vehicles using 100% renewable energy. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of The Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of The Driven website and of Renew Economy. And in this episode, we are continuing our series on presentations from our recent electric vehicle transition conference that was held in Sydney in late August. This episode is from this presentation is from Anna Scarbeck. She's the CEO of Climate Works and she gave one of the keynote speeches on the first day of the conference and a great presentation it was. Climate Works has done an awful lot of research and work and studies into the abatement challenge and needs um, for Australia and, and more globally. And I guess there's two things that I really took out of this presentation. One was the incredibly important role that electric vehicles play in the transition to a clean economy. If you want a zero carbon society, then of course it's not just about decarbonising electricity, it's also decarbonising transport and cars are going to pay an absolutely critical future. And I think Dr. Anna Scarbeck's message is pretty clear. Um, We need to get on with it and we need to do it quickly. And the second part of it is related to that, it can actually be done. And she's done some really interesting work. Her team has done some really interesting work about the opportunities for fleet buyers. Now, fleet owners are governments and companies, local governments, state governments, federal governments, companies, and what have you. They actually account for one half of the purchases of all vehicles each year. So they're a considerable player in the market. And they have a different way of thinking about car purchases to consumers because to them, it's a business asset. They depreciate it over a couple of years. They usually hold on, hold, only hold on to the vehicles for three or four or five years. So the way they think about the value of that asset is completely different different and Anna Scarbeck points out that while the ticket price of an electric vehicle may still be much higher than the ticket price of a petrol or gasoline vehicle the long-term or the the asset cost of holding one of those vehicles for four or five years is probably about the same and extraordinarily it's probably cheaper with a lot of the new vehicles that have now come onto the market. I found this a fantastic fascinating presentation on so many different levels but let's hear Anna Scarbeck from Climate Works. As Gerald mentioned Climate Works is a non-profit um, evident-based in- independent advisor we're focused on accelerating the transition to net zero emissions for Australia and now also um, Southeast Asia and Pacific. Uh, we were co-founded 10 years ago by the Maya Foundation and Monash University um, and we work within the Monash Sustainable Development Institute. Um, We try and focus especially on the bridge between research and action, Um, looking at what are the pathways for net zero emissions and what can we do to help government and business unlock those. So we've had a team looking at EVs for quite some time and I'm going to cover a couple of our projects that touch on that. The first is is focused on the present, looking at um, EVs for fleet buyers. So we discussed earlier the importance of looking at fleet buyers. Um, You've heard fleet... uh, mentioned a few times, fleet being code for all the cars on the road. But in this instance, we're talking about fleet being when institutions purchase cars in bulk. Um, And so why focus on fleet buyers? Uh, Because generally, corporate or government buyers of fleet cars buy more often. And what that means, if you're trying to transition 
um, the entire fleet of vehicles in a nation like Australia, then helping bring more vehicles of the, of the new kind, say zero emissions vehicles, into um, the market means that you can also um, help the second-hand market. You're just bringing more models into the availability to encourage turnover sooner. But also focusing on fleet buyers um, is, is obvious for practical regions that that there are a larger volume of cars being purchased from a fewer number of purchasers and so we can reach those purchasers in terms of the decision makers who at the end of the day are all humans who, who, um, who cover other things in their day jobs and for whom this is new. So being able to reach them as a group um, is a really powerful thing. And so what I'll talk about is a project that we, were, we did with working with all the local governments as a group, fleet buyers in Victoria, working with the Municipal Association of Victoria. Um, you may not know that local councils alone buy about 9,000 cars a year and government fleet buyers altogether, so local, state and federal government, uh, buy about 38,000 cars every year. And that's before we think about corporate fleet. So focusing on fleet buyers is really important if we want to shift markets. And of course the other element, particularly with local councils um, and many governments, state as you'd know, um, is that those fleet owners themselves want to shift to more sustainable energy uses and modes of transport, but they do need help. So ClimateWorks worked with the Electric Vehicle Council and the Municipal Association of Victoria um, to blend the networks and skill sets of each of those three organisations, the EV Council bringing the great connections with the manufacturers and the charging infrastructure providers, and the MAV obviously with the connections into all the local councils, 79 local councils in Victoria and their knowledge of the, the players inside local government. Here are the headline results, which I'll then explain in a couple of scenario, uh, slides afterwards. The most interesting finding and exciting finding was that for every car model where there is an EV, utes being the type of car that local councils buy where there is not yet an EV, there is already an EV model whose total cost of ownership is within or below current council costs of ownership. Now, I'll unpack this for you. And the next slide shows how did we calculate total cost of ownership. But the big difference here from the slides from Bloomberg NEF is we're not just thinking of upfront purchase price, but total cost of ownership. Because obviously, if you are a fleet owner, you, you carry both the operating costs as well as the purchase cost. And I'll explain in a detail, in a moment, that detail. The ranges here is... Our team, over the course of a year working with MAV, surveyed all the local councils to get a, an Excel calculator spreadsheet, all this data of what do they actually spend to purchase and own and operate their cars. And you'll see the range. There's quite a range. So the top row, the pink, this top row here is the actual data from last year from Victorian councils, average cost of ownership. Now, when I say average, that's the low end and the high end. So there are councils in the middle, and not all councils are at the upper or at the lower, across these car models. This is what councils are actually paying currently. Um, what we then did was put out a call through the EV Council to all the manufacturers to say, give us your cost data if this council was to purchase your car for their needs and we ran the same total cost of ownership calculator over the cost of operate, purchase and operating those cars. And what you'll find here is the pale, this, whoop, pun, the pale green uh, colour is where 
there is a model that was within that cost range. The dark green is where it's better than the cost range. And actually, I made a mistake. That needs to be dark green. That was a cut and paste error there. So in the SUV category, the van and the minibus category, there are current models, in this particular case, Hyundai and, and SIA, that are already better than what any council is paying. And then for the other models, hatch, sedan, um, and also SUV and van, there are other models, Renault and Hyundai, that are within what councils are paying. And generally, if you notice, at the lower end, significantly at the lower end of the range that current councils. And of course, there's the Tesla as well, which at the moment is not within the range, but nonetheless was included in our survey. Now, this was news to most of the fleet owners and fleet buyers. There is a lot of capacity building needed to, to be able to share this information on an apples-for-apples apples basis for busy council officers who, yes, do have the responsibility to buy the cars each year for the council, but that's not their only job in, in the council that they do. And so gathering this information understanding the information, being able to acquire it from six or seven different providers and then normalise it across. Um, it's time intensive and takes um, analytical skill. So we supported the councils to do that. Thank you. And behind the scenes, these were the calculations. I'm, I'm sure for many of you this is a familiar... Thank you. Different battery. Um, different set of... Uh, this would be a familiar set of calculations. It's, it's basic. Total cost of ownership is capex and opex divided by the number of kilometres. So those units we were talking about was cost of ownership per kilometre. Now, I'm sharing here, how do we find capex? It's the purchase cost, the drive-away cost, minus the expected resale value. And opex includes the fuel plus the cost of maintenance, tyres and insurance. For the council project, these were the assumptions that we used. That they own the cars in their fleet for six years, that the annual range is 20,000 kilometres, that the energy cost is 15 cents per kilowatt hour. And we assumed that insurance is the same no matter what the engine type. So we just excluded insurance from these calculations because we didn't consider it a swing factor. And we also included the cost of charging, excluded the cost of charging infrastructure, um, considering that that's generally born outside of this equation and outside of this set of ownership. So we then used exact same data across all the fleet models uh, based on last year's data from the, the manufacturers themselves. So that was um, empowering information for the councils, uh, certainly on a cost-benefit ratio alone. Um, it made sense to act today. Then, of course, there's the emissions benefit. We did the calculation. Um, it, it goes without, uh, out saying that on our assumptions, the zero emissions over its lifetime is the assumption for the electric vehicle because we assumed that the electricity used was renewables. Um, either on-site, many councils do have that now through their own PPAs, or else there's a green power option. And we had these calculations in the data for what the emissions were per different um, model type. I don't need to go into too much detail, but it, it is all available in our report. And again, multiply that by the number of cars uh, purchased um, per annum, and you can see how these benefits can scale. It adds up then that there are multiple benefits for EVs 
there's the upfront financial benefit, there are the emissions reductions benefit, and all the local councils now are measuring their emissions in detail. Many of them have signed up to the under two MOU, under two degrees. Mayors and cities around the world have pledged together um, to, to have their own equivalent Paris Agreement targets. And the sustainable leadership, many of them want to, to lead, um, but do need help to do it. Of course, these cars are often very visible as well, out and amongst the community. And so it's a, it's a really valuable audience to focus on. But what did we learn about helping these fleet buyers actually do this? At least three, at least three programs would be needed. Number one, the capacity building, like this calculator that I talked about. It, it's relatively straightforward for those of us who live and breathe this stuff. Um, but there are 79 local councils in Victoria alone, and just think that most of these fleet buyers in councils uh, don't have a lot of support around them to do this type of stuff. So there's opportunities for a how-to guide, create forums for them to learn from each other, knowledge sharing, all that sort of stuff. It doesn't take much, but it does take resourcing, which is not available right now through any source. Also, events to create momentum at the executive level. Often the councils told us different stories. Sometimes the council laws were very on board and the staff were still gaining the capacity. Sometimes it was the other way around. The staff totally got it but needed the mayor or the key political leaders to get on board and be able to back it. So you can do test drive days, you can do other sorts of high-profile type event days. That, that can be tailored um, you know, for the, for the audience and they can be quite good at organising that. But again, it needs a little bit of support. And then, of course, there's the capital cost itself. So there is always the upfront purchase price, which, you know, the sticker shock um, that can continue to be a barrier, notwithstanding our calculations show that you should be able to look past that. Um, so everything that you've heard from, um, from Bloomberg NEF already um, helps highlight that support is still needed to try and bring that cost down. You can also do quite a bit in terms of the bulk buying opportunity, just aggregating these, these fleet buyers and, and building a marketplace between bulk buyers and the manufacturers. Um, as Ali pointed out, it's, it's still a fairly small market in Australia and so helping create, connecting the buyers and the sellers can help bring some of those capital costs down themselves. We were able to encourage the manufacturers to put their best offer forward rather than just what, what a local council might be able to download from a website, for example. So there's quite a bit to do here and now in the present just to harness what the opportunity um, exists already. And now I'm going to turn to what do we need to see into the future based on where we want to head if we take um, the Paris Agreement emissions goals into account. So ClimateWorks is working on an upcoming report, Decarbonisation Futures, which is updating our deep decarbonisation pathways work from five years ago. We're assessing all the latest technologies that are available to us across all the sectors uh, of um, emissions use and energy use and looking at what combination of those technologies would we need for Australia to stay under a 2 degrees carbon budget and a 1.5 degrees carbon budget because the IPCC published their big report last October and highlighted the massive importance of aiming for one and a half instead of two. Indeed, our friends in the Pacific Islands would say it's 1.5 to stay alive. So we're looking at the solutions, we're highlighting what has been the momentum. Even in the last five years, a lot has changed. You hear this a lot from Bloomberg, but we also wanted to share that story across all sectors. And then what are the actions that we would need to see for these solutions to really take off at the volume that we will need? And then again, describing a future scenario. Greg's right, none of us know uh, the future 
in an accurate sense, but it does help a lot to envisage what might the future pathways be so that we can aim for them where we can see that there are some no regrets um, solutions to jump at and particularly get a taste of what is the necessary scale if we are really serious about achieving the Paris Agreement. So what's some of the momentum that we've seen in the shifting technology in the last five years? Mainly technological improvement, um, as we've heard often, is, is usually surprising on the upside. So electrification has done better than thought. It's likely to take a larger share of road transport. And hydrogen has broken through in a way that wasn't predicted five years ago and is now looking viable for heavy and non-road transport. But the challenges remain, and they're different types of challenges for each transport type. For the road transport, it's mostly deployment. You know, EVs exist, but they're not deployed and they're not integrated. That's exactly the work Greg was talking about. Is It's no small feat to integrate it into an electricity system. Um, but it's, it's now a challenge of deployment and integration more than it is you know, inventing the thing and optimising. On the long haul, we've still got to do a lot more of the, not so much the inventing, but the optimising, bringing the costs down for hydrogen fuel, fuel cells, for trains, for buses, for trucks, heavy freight, long haul, mining, off-road. It's proven, it's possible that the technology can do this, whether it's hydrogen biofuels in particular, Electricity doesn't look like it's likely to be the um, uh, energy form of choice for a zero emissions heavy energy needs in transport, um, aviation, shipping and heavy road. But hydrogen and biofuels and hybrid electric can be, but aren't yet. So massive amount of technological development and then we'll also have deployment and integration to do. So that's, that's a very high level picture of what we see um, when we look at what the technological solutions are that are emerging. In a bit more detail across the segments of transport that we look at, road transport, we've talked, this EV is focused on that, that's 45% of current transport emissions. The heavy transport is 38% on road, and that's where biofuels and hydrogen are emerging. As well as I want to point out on the right-hand side, what are the, what we call the supporting solutions? So the middle column is what can technology do for the vehicle itself? And then the other side is, well, what about... The, the ecosystem that the vehicle operates in. So autonomous vehicles and mode shift are going to change the, the volume of vehicle kilometres we need or demand. Similarly, e-commerce, different ways of, of um, logistics and freight might change how much heavy road we need. It doesn't change the fact that we still need the hydrogen and the biofuels, but it does affect what you model in your scenarios. Shipping, 2%, still really important. Um, Electrification is probably only a short-haul option there, so hydrogen ammonia is coming through, linked to hydrogen as a solution. Aviation, biofuels at the moment. Electrification can be a short-haul opportunity. Biofuels more likely to be the long-haul. And rate, rail, 4% as well. A similar blend of solutions. So at the very high level from an emissions perspective... These scenarios are still being refined and we will publish in the next couple of months the, the national story. The red being the sort of what we're calling base case. It's, it's a variation on business as usual. And the others being the carbon budget scenarios, two degrees and one and a half. Can we stay under, um, get to zero emissions by 2050? That's total transport emissions and how steeply the curve needs to change from, from what is predicted, the red. The other side, the other curve is how fast do EVs need to come up the adoption curve. And I'll highlight this again in a moment. Um, these are lines on a page, but in terms of the challenges that you, you heard about from Greg and Ali earlier, we've got to address these challenges at a super fast rate 
if we want to have a ch our best chance of staying under the Paris Agreement carbon budgets. It also highlights that there are lots of different ways to even achieve those trajectories. There are lots of different ways to stay under net zero emissions by 2050. And we've tried to highlight, and, and, and I haven't got time now to go into all of the detail behind this, but we will publish it in a couple of months. But just looking at base case, if we stay on an oil-based uh, vehicle market, compared to essentially a policy-driven, perhaps price-driven or regulation-driven outcome, where you have a, perhaps a, an, on current prices a, bi a biofuels-heavy sort of mix, and a, if innovation can really take off, then electricity and hydrogen could move much faster and take much more of the total road transport energy use share. So we'll be unpacking even just the difference. You see these scenarios, they look almost identical, but inside them they could be quite different depending on which driver. This goes to how tariffs are priced, how regulation is set, what other social or consumer or corporate pressures are put can, can really influence what's the underlying energy mix that emerges even if we do hit the 2050 zero emissions targets. So there's a lot to consider. I won't go into this in detail, but we've extracted what are some of those um, metrics in each of those scenarios. And the one of interest here is the volume of electric vehicle sales as a proportion of new vehicles by 2030 needs to be nudging 50% if we are on path to those 2050 zero emissions pathways compared to 1% now. And we've got the, you know, up to 5 million vehicles in the next 10 years. So 2030, the next 10 years, it's not that far away. That little girl there happens to be my youngest daughter. She's not yet in kinder. Um, and in 2030, she won't have graduated from school. But if we're going to achieve the Paris Agreement and be on these pathways, she needs to be graduating into a market where 50% of all EVs are electric, where the grid is working, and where we're on path hopefully to one and a half degrees, not two. As I mentioned, that IPCC report studied the difference between and they might sound like technical numbers, but I've just plucked one example from that report. I could have picked drought. I could have picked impact on food production, pollination of species. Just the coral reef one, it's pretty stark. In a two-degree scenario, nine years out of ten, coral reefs are bleached. Scientists say they collapse at that. There's not enough time for regeneration. At one and a half degrees, they bleach around half the number of years. So not nine in ten, but between four and seven. They can recover in that time at one and a half degrees. So those 10 years makes a massive difference. And it's the choices we make in these years will influence where we get in the next 10. So just from an EVs market perspective, there are obviously many targets to think about, but the simplest one is around half of all cars being EVs within the next 10 years. For corporates, that's how many years is a corporate plan? Three years, five year corporate plan? So you've got two, maybe three corporate plans between now and then. In terms of car purchases, six-year car ownership or 10 years, we've got one or two car purchases. So for the kids who aren't voting yet, what decisions are you making for your next corporate plan and car purchase decisions? The 
Driven Podcast was brought to you by Zero Mo, the non-profit initiative that supports battery electric alternatives for lawn and gardening maintenance. Zero Mo helps transition to cleaner and quieter garden power tools and electric vehicles powered by 100% renewable energy. Visit zeromo.com.au and find out how you can make the switch to zero emission, petrol-free lawn and garden maintenance.